everybody. You're listening to Diffuse Tap with Kenny Estes and Ayla Krem. Today, we're talking to James Lavish, the co-founder of The Looking Glass. He's going to put on his institutional investor hat and talk about how they're deploying capital into crypto, what's keeping some of them at bay, and how institutions are thinking about risk in digital assets. Enjoy. All right, one and all, welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Y'all know the deal, or most of you do, but if you don't, here's what you can expect. This is a weekly event. This is our 119th weekly event. Uh, the way it works is we're going to spend briefly talking about Diffuse Tap, aka the event you're at right now. And then Diffuse, why we do this, we're going to do a fireside chat with the expert du jour, Mr. James Lavish. And then we're going to do two more rounds of breakout rooms, kind of like what you just experienced, because we want to spend a lot of our time here together networking in small groups of four, five, six, depending on, well, who drops off and how the random allocation works. But also, we like to have um, some sage words of wisdom dropped by a speaker, hence the insight section with Mr. Lavish today. If you like this sort of networking event, do check out the in-person versions of it. The next one is in Boston on September 15th, hosted by Mr. Michael Gale. So if you want to go uh, hang out with some of the diffuse tappers here and meet them in person instead of just, you know, the front of their face only, that's the way to make it happen. Why do we do this? Because Diffuse is first and foremost a fund platform. So we have two live funds. One's a yield farming market neutral fund, and the other one's a index fund that we're in the process of listing. Either of those are of interest to you, do let us know. But with that, if you're not here to hear from me, you're here to hear from this good man, Mr. James Lavish. James, would you mind unmuting yourself because I'm terrible at introductions and telling us all about your background and what you're up to over at the Looking Glass? Well, how deep do you want me to go into the background? <laughs> Whatever. Exactly two we're, minutes we're... deep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Do I do I have a two minute or a ninety second or what? what I... <laughs> two minutes. Two minutes to go. So you have until uh, Isla gets impatient, and cuts you off. Excellent. Isla can uh, and can cut me off. So my name is James Lavish. Uh, I am. I come from the institutional investing space. I've been in hedge funds or private equity for. Oh, um, it's nearing 30 years now. Uh, I started on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange trading some, you know, something called ADR arbitrage, which some of you may know. It's uh, it's basically trading uh, American depository receipts and uh, for international or U.S. clients, depending on their portfolios. And it's basically it was it was translating uh, foreign securities into U.S. securities by putting them together in a basket and uh, and then translating with the um, with the FX and the currency and and the stamp taxes and that stuff. So back then we didn't have Excel spreadsheets. All we had was a little calculator. And so whoever could do it quickest, uh, they 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 got the trade. And I happen to be pretty good at math. Um, some of you may, may also know if you've seen my background that I was a hockey player. Um, but this is a longer than two minute version. Sorry, Ayla. But, uh, <laughs> so, um, I, I, I was a hockey player and I was on my, I, I was honestly, I was on my, my way to the professional, um, circuit. I was, I was drafted by the Boston Bruins and in my senior year of college at Yale, uh, I blew out my knee and that was the end of it. So in an, in an instant, I had to, I had to figure out what I wanted to do. So back to math. I was pretty good at math. I got stuck on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange trying to pay some bills. And that worked um, back in 1993, 1994. Uh, but that quickly got me into the 
into the institutional hedge fund space because back then hedge funds weren't really a big thing and uh and they were they were looked down upon because we had just come out of the Ivan Bosky uh Michael Milken world um as many of you may remember and so uh it was we were we were the weirdos trading these long short strategies and so I got into that side so my my experience brought me down to Texas, where I worked at a, a hedge fund called Carlson Capital for about five years and traded their arbitrage book. And then I um, I opened my own hedge fund. And I learned about macroeconomics pretty quickly. Uh, you know, when you're in the arbitrage world, you don't really care about much but that trade because everything in the markets can happen around you, and you're you're isolating your alpha on an arbitrage. So you don't care about the rest of the world. So I got my lesson in macro uh, when interest rates went to zero that first time. Uh, and I had to shut down my my hedge fund because if there's no if there's no interest rate on your Fed funds and you don't have a benchmark to to key off of and all uh all arbitrage collapses. So Anyway, flash forward, I, I went into uh, private equity and, and another hedge fund, more of a, mac, uh, a micro cap investing, long, long, long duration investing. This all has a point, sorry, <laughs> but <laughs> long, long, it. long it's duration <laughs> investing um, with micro caps uh, and public micro caps and in, in, in private equity. And so I did that for the last 15 years. I was the chief operating officer of a, a, a hedge fund unit within a, um, a, a larger office called Luther King Capital Management down in Fort Worth, Texas. And so um, when the pandemic hit and my wife and I, we, we were going back and forth between two cities and we got locked down in separate cities for 100 days. So I, I had I had enough of it in June. I packed up my car June 2020 and drove out to Las Vegas, where I am now. You can see everything's kind of yellow always here because the sun never shuts off. And so, um, but I packed up and I left that. I we I came to an agreement over the last year to leave that firm. So I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And my son, he's up at Cornell and he's got a bunch of uh, intelligent friends and they were all getting into crypto in in early 20, in late 2020, early 2021. And so he implored me to take a second look at, at crypto and I did. And I started looking at Ethereum and Cardano and Solana and uh, and eventually settled in on Bitcoin. So I've been Bitcoin focused ever since then. Um, and if you want to hear about my first uh, introduction to Bitcoin, Ayla, I can go into that. But I don't want to. That that was a long, longer intro than you probably expected. So sorry. <laughs> All good. We got we got a really good uh, podcast fodder there from your side. So that's really lovely. <laughs> um, judging by the fact that you have definitely touched on both sides of this uh, coin, institutional, non-institutional. Um, what's really the difference between, if we want to segment just the universe of institutional investors in the first place, what does that really comprise of? Um, how would you bucket the different institutional investors that they are and what are the needs that each of them has when it comes to allocating capital to something like a crypto? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, the institutions can be things like pension funds and endowments. They could be family offices uh, um, and they could be hedge funds. Um, hedge funds trade they they chase alpha. 
Okay, so just put that over there. Uh, endowments and and pensions they, they chase yield, right? So they they absolutely must grow, and endowments must grow to keep up with the costs of running their universities or um, or the underlying uh, you know foundations. And then the pension funds they need to have yield in order to pay out those uh, those uh, uh, liabilities, um, and many of them are unfunded. So. Um, so the difference between the two is if you put pension funds in one bucket and, and pension funds and, and endowments in one bucket, and then you put inst- hedge funds and, and family offices in another bucket, you, you, you have a completely different set of rules that they can play by. So the, the pension funds and endowments have a very strict set of rules that they have to follow. Um, they have investment mandates they have to be very they have to work very closely to whereas on the other side with hedge funds and with family offices they they may or may not have a mandate or may they may have a mandate that's wide open and typically hedge funds do i mean even in the arbitrage space we had a mandate where at the end of our investment um, um in the investment profile in our PPM, we basically said, and we can trade anything we want. And so, uh, and that's typical of hedge funds. So you keep that door open. And so what you've seen over the last few years is when you hear about institutions coming into the crypto space, into the Bitcoin space, um, what, you, what you're seeing is a lot of hedge funds. And the reason is it's it's far easier for them to just start buying Bitcoin or Ethereum and then figure out what to do with it or what it is later. Whereas on the other side, the, the endowments and pension funds, they have this whole, they, they, they have a process they have to go through. Um, and so if you think about it, a hedge fund can wake up. If I'm a hedge fund trader, I can wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to check out this Bitcoin. I'm going to buy a little bit and then figure out what it really is. I, you know, open up a, a Coinbase Pro account. Um, I go in there, I I buy some Bitcoin in one of my portfolios, settle it with the, you know, with a wire from Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan or whatever my prime broker is. And then I've got that in my portfolio. I can, you know, I can just mark it as a, as a little separate investment. No big deal. Now, if you're a family office, you can essentially do the same thing, just buy it in your bank and, and keep it there. Um, you know, or well. We, we all know that it's not really there, but you custody it yourself. You're not worried about it. In a pension fund or an endowment, there's, an, there's a whole process that you have to go through, right? So if you're a portfolio manager and you decide that, you know what, I really understand this space. So you can't, you can't just say, well, I'm going to check it out. I'm going to buy a little bit. We, some, many of you may know the, the, the expression leg into a trade where you just buy a little bit and then you do your research. Well, you can't do that at a pension fund or an endowment. So um, when we talk about institutions, that's where I'm talking about. Hedge funds, I don't really consider. Uh, um, when, when I'm talking about institutions today, just I'm talking about pension funds and endowments. So if you're an institution and you, you're a portfolio manager and you decide, okay, I understand Bitcoin. I get it. I, I truly understand how this is a separate asset class. I want to buy some. Well, you have to go to your investment. Uh, your well, you have to first go to your chief investment officer and convince him or her that this is the right thing to do for your portfolios to create a separate asset class in order to get exposure to this new asset. Well, once you convince 
him or her, then the next thing you have to do is you have to go to the investment committee and then you're sitting around a board and you've got to talk about it. You've got to explain it to them. They've got to go home and do the research. You've got to get a majority of them to understand it and get comfortable with it. Once you go through that, which could take weeks or months, depending on your board, then you have to go to your compliance committee. The first person you're going to talk to is your chief counsel. And your chief counsel is going to tell you whether or not you can actually take on this risk, whether you can create a new asset class. That chief counsel, once you get his buy-in, then you have to talk to the compliance officer. So it may be him or her, it may be another person. So once you get their buy-in, then you have to sit down with the compliance committee and then you get their buy-in. Once you get their buy-in, then you've got to talk about, okay, now what are all the structural things we have to do in order to actually buy and create this new asset class? And that could be, well, first of all, who's going to trade it? You, you don't, you, are you going to use JP Morgan or are you going to use Coinbase? Or are you going to use a, a trader that has access to, um, you know, one of, one of the platforms that, uh, that is approved by the committee? Because you can't just go on to Binance if it's not approved by the committee. You've got to get one of the platforms approved. Then once you trade it, well, at the end of the day, where are you going to market? Do you market at the close of London time? Do you market at the close of New York, of the New York Stock Exchange? Like it trades 24-7. So what is your close? Are you going to use Coinbase's close or TradingView's close or Bloomberg's close? Like where, what, are you going, what are you going to market at? Then once you do that, you've got to figure out, well, who's going to settle it? Are we going to settle it at our prime broker at you know, Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or JP Morgan, like who's going to actually settle it? And then who's going to cut us custody it? it? Are we going to take custody ourselves and 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 hold those key phrases? Are we going to um, use NIDIG? Are we going to use another one of the, uh, you know, new institutions like Coinbase or a Gemini? Like who are we going to use to, to actually custody it? And once we do that, are we going to use a simple custody? Are we going to use a multi-sig custody? So, and you have to go through all of those things just to get it into a portfolio at a pension fund, at an, at an endowment, at an institution. Whereas a person like me or any one of us can go out, open up an account at you know one of the one of the brokers here, go on to Kraken or one of the uh, platforms, go on to Kraken or go on to Coinbase, open up the account you know, wire some money in from our bank and we can own it in minutes. So it's a completely different world. And right now it is absolutely being driven by retail interest and it's not being driven by institutions yet. The only institutions that are in there really in, in earnest are hedge funds. And that's, and that in itself is problematic for major reasons, but I hope that answers your questions. That was a long answer. That was Sorry. very thorough. I loved it. Yeah, that was great. And, you know, we we obviously have our index fund that, you know, we get compared to Grayscale a lot. And it's the mm -hmm. same thing. The investors in Grayscale, they're all like JP Morgan, but it's the trading desk. It's not it's not the people allocating for yield or for capital appreciation. It's the, I'm going to take advantage of this inefficient market, whatever the case may be. Right. So and because that's traded, because that's traded um, on the New York Stock Exchange, it's really easy for them to settle and all that. You get around right. all those exactly. regulations. But we all know that Grayscale has its own issues because you right. can't have liquidity. But go ahead. Yeah. No, exactly right. Yeah. There's massive inefficiencies there. So, you know, if I were to take your uh, 
ridiculously complex in a good way. Well, bad way for everybody else. The pension fund endowment process. There's the conceptually, do we want to go in this direction? That's the first step. Step two seems to be compliance, and step three, for step three, for lack of a better term, is uh, technical implementation details. Like, how do we sure. actually do the trade logistics? Yeah. Where do you think that most pension funds endowments are in that process right now? Uh, they don't yet understand the space. That's where most of them are, which is the, the first step. First, you have to have enough people just to understand it. And that's one of the problems. And, you know, um, we can go into the reasons for that. But quite honestly, it's it's pretty simple. The, the current, the current uh, environment, the current system has benefited all of them greatly to the you know to the most for the most part and so it doesn't they're not they're not incentivized to go learn about this whole new system they hear about this and they see on bloomberg or they see on cnbc that this token is up or down a certain percentage this this token is so volatile or bitcoin is dragging down the whole crypto space and that's all they hear and it really it 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 demands them to go dig deeper so, and that's a really good question. And, and part of the problem is there's, there's not an incentive to go do that, right? That's one part of the problem. The second part of the problem is what happened to me. Back in 2018, I had some discretionary capital that I wanted to invest. I wanted to go out on the risk curve. I wanted to do something different than, than public or private equity or even venture capital or real estate. I wanted to go out on the risk curve. And I heard about this thing called Bitcoin. And I thought, this is this sounds interesting. I want to go check this out. So the first thing I did is, what do you do if you're if you're an institutional investor? The first thing you do is you go talk to the experts in institutional investing because they're the smartest people in the world, right? So I went and talked to the technology analysts in my space. They were out at different banks. They were within my own firm. And the problem is when you talk to them, they're stuck in that legacy system, and so. The first thing I heard back in 2018, this is 2018, the, the, the technology had been around for almost a decade at that point, right? And the answer across the board, bar none, was avoid it. It's a Ponzi scheme. There's no underlying value. Do not put money in it. You will lose. It's going to go to zero at some point because it's just a tulip. And so it's, an, it, it's a digital tulip is what people told me. And so I avoided it. I I. I didn't invest in it. It was the worst investment decision in my career to not invest in Bitcoin back when it was under $3,000, you know, but uh, it's, it's my own. It, that's, that's what we're facing in the institutional world, understanding it and then talking to people about it. So, you know, who do you talk to? And you're getting your information from mainstream media that doesn't understand it. They don't understand what the difference is here. So I hope that helps. Very much so. A follow-on question on one of the things that you said earlier, which is, um, you know, hedge funds or a high level of participation of hedge funds in digital assets might not be the best thing for everybody. What do you think is the potentially negative outcome of hedge funds being the main institutional players yeah. in this space? Yeah. The problem. Well, the problem is okay. Let's talk about hedge funds. So hedge funds, everybody knows, is they're, they're trying to isolate. Alpha. So what they're trying to do is create alpha in a way that the pension funds, the endowments can't do. Well, how can they do that? Well, they can hedge out certain risks, right? So if you're trying to hedge out beta risk in your portfolio and you own a bunch of technology stocks, the easiest thing to do is to go just short the, the Qs, the, the NASDAQ against your portfolio. 
you hedge out the total por- the, the total market risk of technology and you own the alpha of of your positions on top of it so if the market goes up or down your 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 positions will move according to their beta factor to that portfolio okay the problem is hedge funds are using bitcoin as as a sloppy or a quasi hedge to their portfolios and they're doing it in a way that creates this this reality that bitcoin and ethereum in particular are they front run all of the risk assets right so if they want extra alpha they'll they'll go long the the crypto space they'll go long bitcoin and ethereum which have a a high beta to the market right so if they want to be long the market the easiest thing to do and the quickest thing they can do they could go out on a saturday at two o'clock in the morning and say you know what I've been hearing some things today. It's clicked on me. I don't want to wait for Monday morning opening to take some positions in technology stocks in the Apples, the Googles, and the Microsofts of the world. I want to go front run that. So they can go buy Bitcoin and Ethereum over the weekend and grab some alpha over the weekend if they want to. So that's one problem is that they're using it just as a trade. They're not using it as a long-term investment. So the second thing is and this is a major thing is that we don't have a we don't have a cash settled bitcoin um spot settled bitcoin etf right so all we have is a futures settled etf and the way the futures are created you can short as many futures as you as you want in order to hedge out your portfolio the way you want to so they can hedge out millions hundreds of millions billions of dollars worth worth of these uh, coins in a futures market, and that just serves to drive the price lower. And so it's problematic in that, again, using it as a sloppy hedge, they can do that. And uh, and that you just can't do that at a pension fund or an endowment. If you're going to, if you're going to get into the space, you're going to understand it and you're going to use it as a separate asset class. You're not going to just use it to try to drive uh, short-term alpha. Gotcha. Well, unfortunately, that takes us to the end of our fireside chat 15 minutes and people start to uh, get antsy. So we're going to do a breakout room. Um, We did a terrible job with picking up questions from the audience. Apologies. So normally the question after the breakout room for you, James, would be um, tell us the future. But given the tenor of the questions in the chat, maybe if you can make it about the regulatory environment and what institutions need to see, that seems to cover a few of the questions. But we'll ask that question after this breakout room. A couple housekeeping items for y'all. One, it is networking. It's not pitching. Please be respectful. Be kind. And then um, we do not send out a full participant list for privacy reasons. So if you meet somebody you want to connect with, swap details then and there, or join our Telegram group. Link's in the chat. And introduce yourself and ask for something. It's a great networking opportunity. Um, Very engaged community, which is pretty exciting to see. Awesome. I will pop you into rooms now. You'll be some four, five, six folks, depending on the random group generator here. And uh, the question for you all this time around is going to be, which institution do you think is going to lead the their efforts into crypto? Is going to be BlackRock, who just partnered with Coinbase? Or who is going to be the one that's going to 
aid institutional adoption in crypto. I'll put your dreams now and we'll see you back here in 10 minutes. Thanks again, James. All right. Welcome back, one and all. Um, hope you had good chats. As a friendly reminder, back in the big room, please do stay on mute. Otherwise, it causes mayhem or, you know, just an obnoxiousness, whichever you want to call it. But as promised, Mr. James Lavish, tell us the future. What's coming down the pipe? What are you excited about? And if you have the opportunity to put a regulatory slant on it, great. If not, then whatever, whatever trips your trigger. Yeah. So uh, as far as regulatory con concerns, um, you know, I think institutions are just waiting for some clarity. You know, they need clarity from the SEC, from uh, from the IRS. They need to understand who's going to oversee these uh, see these protocols and how they're going to be treated. And once they have that clarity, it's going to it's going to be pretty helpful. But there is a huge fight in Washington over it right now. And and. Um, and that's got to be uh, fleshed out, you know, and once we do get some clarity, that's going to be super helpful for the entire space, I believe. Uh, so that I don't look, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not an attorney and I don't some people in this space, they get into they they wade into waters that they may not really understand. And I don't want to do that. So I don't I I'm waiting myself for more clarity for uh from the regulators on 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 where this goes so but as far as the institutions are concerned hey look you know we've taught we've we've heard about fidelity uh offering uh at least bitcoin to their to their investors and uh and we know that blackrock just uh teamed up with coinbase and the important point about that is that they they uh they teamed up with coinbase um prime and they're and BlackRock is using uh, their institutional platform to to offer uh, the ability to own and custody these these protocols in their uh, in the institution's investment platform. So uh, in their portfolios, so that's a that's a really big deal, and it's it's not being talked about. But again, um, if we go back to you know what we were saying before, is that. Look, we're, Bitcoin is um, and and Ethereum. These these things are are leading risk assets. And until we really get some clarity on the Fed on what they're going to do, uh, I hate to say that everybody's trading the Fed, but we've been conditioned to it in the markets. You all know this. You've been you've been living it for the last twenty years. Every time the Fed makes a move, it it impacts the markets. And in fact, even if they open up their mouths, it it, it impacts the markets because people are waiting for that pivot. So. Until we get an, an, a better understanding of where the Fed's going, what their terminal rate on on the interest rates are going to be on the Fed funds is going to be, and until we get really some clarity around regulation, it's gonna it's going to take a while for these institutions to to dive in fully. The BlackRock's and the Fidelities that's still for primarily retail and small institutions. You know the the institutions that are using BlackRock's platform. They're they're small. Uh, they're they're either family offices or small hedge funds. Those are not the big institutions. Are not the pension funds and endowments. So, um, but I am excited about next year. I think that we, you know after we get through this this uh, market cycle, whether it's the end of next year or later, I I just think that it's inevitable that this space becomes a massive massive part of of the uh of of institutional 
allocations as a whole. You know, I think that I, it's just inevitable. Um, the only the only way that uh, that the space gets tripped up is if we continue to fight about how it's going to be treated on uh, in the regulatory um, you know arena. So, I think it's a a topic that could probably go on forever. Um, what <laughs> I'll do is I will I will hop into one more round of breakout rooms and we'll pick up one of James's points there. Um, which is the regulatory ecosystem will definitely define the speed of adoption. Um, which country do you believe is going to be able to uh, drive institutional adoption of crypto the fastest? Is it going to be a Singapore or a Switzerland or the United States or China? Who's going to be the one to drive institutional adoption? I'll pop you in the rooms now and we will see you back here just before the hour. Okie dokie. Well, Hope you had a good final chat of the day. And we're going to do a quick wrap up here. Once I find the slide, there it is. As mentioned at the top, this is a weekly event. The next one is on DeFi derivatives. A lot of fun, unless you're in the US. Um, and then if you do like this sort of networking event, September 15th in Boston is Mr. Michael Gale's hosting one. And it looks like on October 14th, Jerry is hosting one in New York City. So if either of those are of interest and you're in the neck of the woods, make sure to check them out. Um, otherwise, do join our Telegram group, link in the chat, and we'll be in a follow-up email as well. Introduce yourself and ask for something. Networking in particular is appropriate there. So just join the community and see where it goes. Ms. Isla, what should I have said that I didn't? That was everything. Um, I'm looking forward to everybody being back again and attending our sessions after a long, long summer. But if you have any questions or need anything between now and next week, don't be shy to ping us. Actually love recommendations for speakers or anybody who wants to host an in real life event for the rest of the year ping us we're open to any city whatever wherever you happen to live mr james lavish thank you very much for your words of wisdom uh always nice to see somebody who's traveled both sides of the world and actually has some insights that they uh, took away so thank you very much you're welcome thank you for having me uh, i appreciated both the, the breakout rooms everybody is super smart in this room and it's uh, it's great to be around the smartest minds in in the world so thank you well we know for sure you didn't end up in my breakout room so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and everybody you. else thank you for coming and we'll see you uh a week from today thank you see you later bye. bye cheers bye That's all, folks. Hope you learned something new. If you join us on Zoom every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central, you can also network with other fascinating alternative investors from all over the world in small groups of four or five. Learn more on our website at www.diffusefunds.com. Until next time.